You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Exodus chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 23 through 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath a seat in front of you. And if you do not own a copy of the scriptures in your home, please take that Bible with you today as a gift from us. Um, If you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, this is Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. All right. Well, good morning to everyone. Glad you guys made it. Hope y'all are doing okay. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, it's been since about July since I had the opportunity to preach. I'm excited about it. Brendan knew, so he broke the keys out this morning about the only thing that would make me more comfortable than that is if there were an organ on this side over here. Some of you guys will get that and some of you won't. But uh, It's a a big deal for me. So as Jenna said, we're going to be continuing on in our sermon series titled Out of Bondage. We're walking through this first section. We're walking through the first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus and and seeking to gain a a deeper understanding of God, right? A deeper understanding of, of God's deliverance of Israel from their oppression in Egypt. And even more so than that, our hope is that during this time in the book of Exodus and through all of this, that the Holy Spirit will be faithful to reveal to us more about the character of God. So there are some really, really good stories. We've already been through a lot of them. We've already seen a lot of really good things, even in the first two chapters that are, that are fascinating. But at the end of the day, if you only catch the stories and you walk away just understanding that, you're, you're, missing, you're missing the larger picture. Right? We, want, we want to read the stories, we want to understand who God is, and, and in that process learn more and more about the character of the one who loves us, the one who chose us, the one who has saved us. Right. So that, that's our, that is our end in, in, in this series here that we would be able to see that. So as Jenna's already told us, we're picking up at the end of chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 23 through 25. Now, I want to read this for us again and then pray for us this morning and and just ask the Holy Spirit to be among us and to move. So back into the scriptures, chapter 2, verse 23. says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and he knew. And God knew. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. We ask this morning, God, that you would just, you would be present, that you would move, move among us, Father. God, through the study of your word and, and spending time here trying to understand who you are, God, would you just, would you reveal your character to us? Would you reveal to us what, what these words mean about you and how that, how that applies to us, God? Father, we, we're just so thankful to have the opportunity to gather, to gather before you. We're thankful that your word promises us that you're here, that your spirit is here, and that he is active, he is moving, he's working. This morning, God, I pray hearts would be open, minds would be open, God, that we would, we would be impacted greatly this morning through your word. Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray all of these things. Amen. 
All right, so over the last two weeks, Court has been introducing us to, to Moses and his introduction into the biblical narrative in the second chapter of Exodus. And spoiler alert, if you don't already know, Moses is one that God will raise up to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, out, out of their bondage. So we've, we've been learning a little bit about him. And if you've been paying any attention to that at all, you know that Moses hasn't had the easiest path into this lofty calling that God has for his life, into this, this purpose that God has for him. Um, he's born into an edict from Pharaoh that all Hebrew babies that are born male must be killed. And then in order to protect Moses, his mother hides him for three months and then floats him down the Nile River in a makeshift basket just hoping that he might have a chance at life. And, and he does. He survives because he's found by Pharaoh's daughter while she's bathing, and she has compassion on him. She has compassion on, on the child Moses. And then his own mother is then hired to nurse him until he's old enough to be brought back to Pharaoh's daughter in order to be recognized as her son. And at this point, you would think, man, things are going pretty well. Like God's doing an incredible job of preserving Moses and setting him up. Well, shortly thereafter, the scripture tells us that once he's grown up, he goes out to look on the Hebrew people. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And after looking all around to see if anyone's watching, which I think is one of the... Um, most important hinges in that entire text is that he, it says he looks, he looks to his left and to his right. He looks all around to see, is anyone going to see what I do? And when he realizes he thinks that he's safe, he kills the Egyptian. He buries him. The scripture actually says he hides him in the sand, which I think that's hilarious. Not that he killed the man, but that rather than saying that he killed him and buried him, he hides him in the sand. He hides his body. He doesn't want it to be found out what he has done. He thinks he's gotten away with it, and then a Hebrew man outs him, and he realizes people are aware of what he did, and, and oh, by the way, Pharaoh knows too. And it's in that moment that Moses loses his status as his favorite grandson because the scripture tells us that Pharaoh now wants him dead for that. So Moses flees the land, goes to Midian, where he runs into seven sisters at a well and intervenes in a dispute between the group and some shepherds where he's able to protect the women and allow them to water their father's flock. Now, this in turn leads to Moses spending roughly the next 40 years in Midian, working as a shepherd. He marries one of the sisters. They eventually have a child who Moses names Gershom, which means I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, the reason I recap all of that, the reason I go back through all of that before we get into the text this morning is because I believe it's very important that we recognize and we note that while the Israelites are suffering, so as this is going on, they are in bondage. As this is going on, they're in slavery. So as they are suffering greatly at the hands of the Egyptians in what Exodus chapter 1 calls ruthless slavery, ruthless slavery, they, they are in bondage, the slavery is ruthless, all of these things are happening, and it's important that when we read that, that we understand that during that, God is not sitting idly by and allowing them to suffer to no end. He is working in the background as they are suffering. In the midst of their suffering, God is continuing on about the business of their salvation. It's a very important point. It's very important that we understand that before we move forward into verses 23 through 25. See, in what I just read through, God has preserved Moses' life three different times in what I just, what I just walked you through, what Court has preached to us the last two weeks. And then we see in verse 22, right before we get into today's text, that God has ingrained in Moses' heart that Midian is not his home. 
He has this child. He names him Gershom. And he, said, he names him that because he's been a sojourner in a foreign land. It is made clear while Moses is in Midian, while he has been in Midian, while it would probably be incredibly easy for him to remain in Midian and have a very comfortable life, he knows that Midian is not home that he has more to do. He has somewhere else to go. And in this, this time, God is preparing him to go back to his people. So it's with that framework that we jump in at verse 23. I want to read that for us very quickly. It says, during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So during the 40 years that Moses spends in Midian, the scripture tells us that the king of Egypt died. Now, there's two reasons why that is significant to note. The first one, it opens the door. It tells us that the king, the Pharaoh that wanted Moses dead has died. He has moved along. So it opens the door for Moses to return to Egypt because that Pharaoh's dead. He no longer is under the the danger of being killed immediately upon entering Egypt because that king that had that against Moses has now moved on. But Probably the most important reason, while it's important that we understand that this happened and that the king of Egypt has died during this 40 years, is because as you read through the rest of this text, it seems that the death of the king of Egypt is the thing that God uses to cause his people to turn back to him for help in the midst of their oppression. It seems that that is the thing that God uses as a catalyst to bring all of this back around. It's important for us to remember that at this point when this is happening, the Egyptians, or excuse me, the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for somewhere around 400 years. I think we read those types of things in Scripture and we just, we just move past them. We don't sit and marinate in what it means that they've been in slavery for 400 years. For reference, this is 2022 20, now, right? Am I right about that? The last three, two or three years have just kind of all run together in a, a sequence of suffering. But... It's, <laughs> It's 2022, so that means that in this very moment, 400 years ago, the year was 1622. So I I did some research. I was going to, like, come up with a few things to to throw out that were happening in the world in 1622. And let me just tell you, if you look at it, what you're going to find out is that everybody was fighting. There was war everywhere. So rather than go through all the wars, I pulled out the one interesting fact that I thought we could all kind of resonate with. 1622 was the first time that January the 1st was recognized by the Gregorian calendar as the first day of the year. So prior to that, the first day of the year had always been recognized as March 25th. So that's free. has nothing to do with the sermon. Take that home. Use it at the coffee pot in the morning at work. It's trivia or whatever. Uh, and, and know that if you are privileged enough to have always known January 1st is New Year's Day, then you have no frame of reference as to what was going on in 1622, like I don't. But the idea here is that 400 years have passed and the Israelites have remained in slavery in Egypt. And during that 400 years, generations and generations of Israelites had been born into and died in brutal Egyptian oppression. And here's the thing. There's no biblical record of God sending prophets to them. There's no biblical record of any writings from Abraham that are circling around to bolster their faith. Any faith that they had in God, they were holding on to because of stories that had been passed down through the generations for 400 years. It's a long time for a story to continue. And Exodus doesn't necessarily go into it, but we see the natural progression here in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, and it should come up here behind me. We see that the Egyptians had begun to adopt some of the idols, excuse me, the Israelites, 
had begun to adopt some of the idols of the Egyptians and had, had turned from God. Scripture says, I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. I think we can all resonate with the idea that when extended periods of suffering come, all of us, to some degree, can relate to what the Israelites had fallen into here. They began to grasp, try to find something that was tangible, that was close, that they could put their faith in, that might bring them some sort of hope. I am the world's worst about this. I am the guy that every time, you can ask my friends, ask my wife, every time something goes wrong, the very first thing I want to do is start figuring out a plan to make it stop. My wife will come in and she'll talk to me. She'll tell me whatever's going on, and I'll just start explaining to her what she needs to do. And she'll stop me and say, I don't need you to fix me. I just need you to listen. And this is what I see them trying, the Israelites trying to do here. They're looking for something that can bring them hope in the midst of what seems like an eternity of slavery and oppression at the hands of the Israelites. But what we know and what we find and hopefully what you've experienced in your life and you've seen in the testimony of others is that we know God is always faithful to bring those who belong to him back to him. And he uses the death of an Egyptian pharaoh to do that here in this text. You see, every time the king of Egypt would die, and several died over the course of 400 years, every time the king of Egypt would die, there would be a measure of hope to the Israelites that the next king might, might be different, right? This next, this next guy that they put in power, he may be less harsh, right? He may be more compassionate. He may be more permissive to the Israelites than last time. But the reality was, over and over again, it just seemed to get worse. It just seemed to continually get worse for them. And in this instance, the pending extended time of oppression finally stirred something in their hearts. And the scripture tells us they cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now, there was something particularly unique about this situation, though, for them, about this king dying and the hope that Israel had tethered to his death. And the thing is, is that, is ha- that had happened many times before in the past, as I said, several kings, several kings had died, several kings had passed on in that 400 years. But the thing that was particularly unique about this particular king that passed on was God's timing. In God's timing, this was the one, this was the moment, this was the time that he had chosen, this was the time that he had ordained to begin the process of freeing his people and to use the death of this king to bring it to pass. So it's not that God was idle as the other kings died. It's not that he was not compassionate toward the Israelites as the other kings died. It's because it was not right and everything is in his timing. Right? Everything is in God's timing. So moving on to verse 24. It says this, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So you'll remember uh, in the, early on in the book of Genesis, God has promised each of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bless all the nations through their offspring. He'd bless all the nations through their offspring. And upon hearing the groaning of the Israelites, those covenants were remembered. By God. Now, here, here's what's interesting about God remembering covenants is that when you see that language in the Scripture, every time that the Scripture tells us God remembers someone or he remembers his 
covenant with someone, it is always an indication that he's about to take action on their behalf every single time. It's right before he chooses and goes in and takes action on their behalf. And that's not because he had forgotten those covenants and something happened that jogged his memory. We know that God doesn't need his memory jogged. God doesn't forget. It's not that that happened. It's that he intentionally decides in those moments and in this moment to remember. And remembrance for God always leads to action because God always keeps his promises. Always. For us, for them, for those in the future that will, that will come to trust in God. He always keeps his promises. And we're going to see that as we move forward through this series. God's about to do some pretty incredible things in the process of bringing the Israelites out of Egypt in the name of keeping his covenant. Over the next several weeks, we're going to go through multiple sermons that are just chalked full of stories of the power and the mercy of God for his people. And it's in this moment that God, the scripture tells us God remembers his covenant and now he intends to take action. As I said before, one of the the greatest gifts that we've been given by God as Christians is the assurance that God always keeps his promises. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this in chapter 10, verse 23. He says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. That which God has promised, we can hold fast to as believers, even if it seems that the execution of those promises is far out. At the end of the day, the scripture is clear. We hold fast to that because he who promised is faithful. Now, his action may not always be in our timing. Like I said, as the Israelites can testify, after 400 years in slavery, but we cling to the truth that God always keeps his promises. God never forsakes his covenants. And because of that, God could not and was never going to leave his people in Egypt. He always had a plan for them. In the same way that God always has a plan for us that trust him, he always had a plan for the Israelites. Verse 25 says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So the scripture tells us that God saw his people. What does that mean? That means he saw their struggles. That means he saw their weariness. That means he saw their idolatry. It means he saw the murder of their children. It means he saw the even worse oppression which was surely coming. And here's the thing that we know we can cling to about God. Only God can look upon that amount of suffering, that amount of oppression, and that amount of hopelessness and change it. Only God. If you go back up in chapter 2 to verse 11, we see, as Court told us last week, I believe, Moses looked upon that oppression also. Look at verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. This is the story we talked about earlier. Moses goes out in verse 11. He looks upon the burdens of his people, tries to take matters into his own hands before God was ready to act. And that ends with Moses in an even worse situation than he was in before, and it did nothing to change the position of the Israelites. Only God can look upon that level of oppression and take moves to change it, and we can guarantee that it will be changed. In God's timing, the most unimaginable horrors are made new, and that's something that we've seen time and time again. We've seen it in testimony in Scripture. We've seen it in testimony from fellow believers, we've seen it. Hopefully you've experienced it in testimony in your own life. Through the goodness of God in, in your life, 
The evidence of God's grace in struggle is everywhere if we're looking for it. It's everywhere. God is constantly intervening on the behalf of his people when they are in struggle. The other thing that verse 25 tells us is that when God saw the people of Israel, God knew. And those two words will frame everything else that goes on from this point. It will frame everything that we talk about, and it's framed everything that's happened up to this point. It's this hinge in the text where we are reminded that not only did God see them, that God knew everything about what had been taking place. He knew everything about what would take place. You see, most everyone agrees, everyone will agree that God knew the problems of the Israelites and he was concerned about them, and I believe that's absolutely true. But if you stop there, if you stop at that, I think you're missing some incredibly important things that we can learn about the character of God in those two words, God knew. You see, God also knew their weaknesses. He knew that they would fail. He knew when they would fail. He knew when they would sin against him in the future. He knew all of those things. He also knew that through their salvation, by his hand alone, he was going to take action that would leave a permanent imprint upon the entire human race. God knew all of these things when he looked upon his people, when he looked upon their oppression. And here's another thing that God knew, and probably the thing that, that If we ever really grasp this concept, and honestly, I don't know if we will, because in a lot of ways it is beyond our ability to comprehend. But another thing that God knew was that long before Joseph died, long before Israel was enslaved, long before their children were being murdered, and long before Israel groaned and cried out for God, God knew that every last bit of this was going to happen. Every last bit of it. Look back in Genesis chapter 15. Verses 13 and 14, this is the Lord establishing his covenant with Abram. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain, for certain, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. He tells them how long the affliction will last. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possession. So centuries before any of this had happened, God tells Abram exactly what would take place, exactly how long it would take place, and exactly how he was going to handle it. It is very important that we understand God was not caught off guard, and today he's still not caught off guard. He's not sleeping as we suffer. He's not sleeping as things seem to encapsulate us with with fear or whatever else comes our way. God is never caught off guard. He's not caught idle. He was allowing the oppression of the Israelite people for a time, for a time, in order to accomplish his divine purposes and multiply his glory upon the earth. And all along, all along, while they were in oppression, unbeknownst to Israel, God was raising up an unlikely candidate to save the people from their oppressors. So all of this is happening simultaneously. All of it's happening at the same time. And guys, what I I really want to impress upon us today is that in the same way, in the same way that, that God looked upon the Israelites and God knew, God looks upon our present troubles today and God knows. He knows. Just like he knew then, he knows now. Whether whatever it is, whether it's finances, whether it's relationships, whether it's substance, catch this one because this is really important for us now, whether it's anxiety due to a raging culture, 
I cannot tell you, and I, me, myself also, but I can't tell you the number of people that I've talked to that right now are absolutely encapsulated in anxiety because they're looking around going, what is happening around me? What will become of my children? What will my children be taught? What will they be taught in school? What will they be taught in the world? What will their friends believe? Can I even send them to spend the night anymore at friends' house? Can I really trust the perspective of people that I think I know and love because culture is raging around us? Whether, whether it's your children, whether it's your job, any type of brokenness in our lives at all, I want you to hear me this morning. God knows. He knows, and he's not idle. He's not standing by. He's not watching these things happen and void of care for his people. He never has been. He never will be. The same is true today as it was for the Israelites. And here's the thing. Here's how good God is. God could have easily just given the Israelites what they thought they wanted. They wanted the king to die. They wanted the new king to be a little more permissive. They wanted the new king maybe to not be so harsh and overbearing, maybe give them a lighter load in their work. That's all they were after. And God could have easily given them that. He could have easily caused their load to be lightened. He could have easily caused the Egyptians to give them more manageable tasks with better working conditions. He could have easily allowed them to remain in bondage in this better situation. And the Israelites would have been fine with it. They would have been fine with forfeiting future glory for present comfort just as most of us in a lot of cases would be fine with that today. A lot of us would be absolutely fine with forfeiting future glory for present comfort. That, that, that's so true. That's so true. If that were a movie, I would be on the movie poster. I'd be outside the showbiz, man, on the wall. <laughs> but God doesn't go that route, right? He doesn't go that route. He chose to completely and miraculously save them from their oppressor and set them on a path for the promised land. And you see, he's, he's done the same for us. God's done the same for us. He doesn't, he doesn't look and see what's going on and just deal with the results of our oppression. God doesn't just look and see, man, the world is raging. Let me, let me deal with some of these symptoms of the problem. He doesn't do that. Sometimes he does because he's good and he's gracious, but he doesn't. He doesn't just deal with results of oppression. God has dealt with the oppressor himself. God has dealt with our oppressor. He hasn't just dealt with our circumstances. He's dealt with the one that is creating the oppression. You see, in the Israelites' case, their oppressor was Egypt. Our oppressor is sin and Satan. God, God looks upon it. You know, God sends Moses, we'll see over the next several weeks, to lead the Israelites into freedom from their oppressor. God sent Christ to die so that we may be freed from ours. <laughs> he handles the root of the problem, the root, not the symptoms. Those things are, it's an incredibly important distinction for us to understand. You see, Jesus stands as the true and better Moses for us. He stands as the true and better Moses, and he's come to establish the new covenant with those of us who believe through his death on the cross and his resurrection to claim victory over death, to claim victory over the death that, that is rightfully ours because of our, our disobedience, because of our sinfulness that was inherently woven into us from birth. But thanks be to God that he's created a way. He's created a way that we might be freed from that. We might be loosed from that oppression to live free lives in honor of God and, and, and to the will of God. You see, God hears us when we cry out. He sympathizes 
with us in our weakness and oppression, and he stands ready to deliver us when we call upon his name. Just as he did for the Israelites, when we call upon him, he stands ready to deliver us. And here's the thing. Here's the even more incredible truth here. Furthermore, God gives us the very strength that we need to cry out to him. You know, I've struggled. I've struggled in my faith. We all go through these times where we struggle. And this this point here that, that God gives us the strength to cry out to him is, is incredible. Well, often we find ourselves in sin or in despair. We can find ourselves angry with God due to our circumstances. We can find ourselves engulfed with shame because of that, right? Engulfed with shame because of that. And, and we believe, we know that we need to approach God. We, we know that the only one who can remedy our situation is God, but we're so engulfed with shame that approaching God seems impossible. And the beautiful truth for the believer is the very reason you have a desire in your heart to approach God is because he gave it to you. (laughs) There's no amount of shame. There's no amount of sin. There's no amount of error. There's no amount of despair that can be placed in your life or that you can place in your life that would have God hit the ignore button when you cry out to him. You are his. You are his child. Those of you who are parents, you understand this concept, right? There is literally, I I can get very, very, very frustrated with my boys, with my boys. Grace doesn't do a whole lot wrong, but the boys, I can get I can get very frustrated with the boys, but you know what? At the end of the day, when the sun's going down and they're outside playing, I never just say, oh, I'm frustrated with them. Leave them out in the dark. I don't care what happens to them. We don't do that. We open the front door and we yell, or I do in Huffman. I yell, Jonah, Micah, get in here. It's dark, even if I'm mad at them. Why? Because I love them and because they're mine. Because they're mine. And God looks upon us with the same grace and he says cry out to me because I want you to and there's nothing at all that would cause me to turn my back on you when you seek my name this is is how the Lord deals with us we can't lose sight of that we can't lose sight of that so regardless of our current situation regardless of what we're carrying regardless of what you did right before coming in here this morning or what you're going to do when you leave hear me when I say God knows and God loves you. He knows and he loves you. I told you a little bit about my boys. I have also have a five-year-old daughter named Grace. And if you can't tell, um, I'm really high on Grace. I think she is a, uh, she's an excellent daughter candidate. I'm glad that she, she is mine. And uh, she's my youngest. So my two boys are older. And before Grace was born, when we found out that Leah was pregnant with, with a girl and we'd be having a girl, I started this thing with my boys where I consistently told them and, and ingrain, hopefully tried to ingrain in their mind that as the men in her life, myself and my two sons, her brothers, that it was our job to, to encourage her, to make her feel loved, to make her feel beautiful. That way, she always sought that type of attention. She always received it from the home and didn't go looking for it elsewhere. I was really, really big into that with my boys, and we still are. So since the day she was born, I've called her, I call her my beautiful girl. Grace, you're my beautiful girl. Or come, I'll come in from work and open the door, and she's on the couch, and I'll say, you know, hey, my beautiful, or something like that. It's just kind of a thing in our house that's happened because of that. And the other night, I was sitting on the couch. I'd come in, and I don't know what I was doing. I was probably watching some doom and gloom on the news or whatever, and uh, Grace comes in, came into the living room, and she climbs up on my lap, and I grabbed her like I always do, and I hugged her, and I said, Gracie, do you know you're my beautiful girl? 
And Grace looked at me, looked, at, looked me dead in the eyes and, and said, said, Dad, how would I not know? You've always told me since I was born. And I was like, yes, that's victory. You know, like we, we've, we've won or we're at least on the, on the path to, to winning. And, and I, I was thinking about that as I was finishing this sermon. And it remind, I was reminded of her saying that to me. How would I not know? You've always told me since I was born. Scripture teaches us that God has known and loved us since before we were born. Since before we were born. How would we, how would we not know? We've been loved since before we were. Surely, surely he knew your affliction. Surely he knew your suffering. Surely he knew your worries and your anxiety. Surely he knew your future failures. Surely he knew the time that you would grow up in. Surely he knew the time that your children would grow up in. He knew when you fell as a parent. He knew when you fell as a husband or a wife. He knew all of those things, but yet before you exited the womb, you were loved and chosen by God to be his. I think if we could ever really wrap our minds around that, that we could find, we could find a lot of comfort, a lot more comfort than we currently live in, but that's so it's so opposite of the way we're wired. It's so opposite of the way that we're, we see other people interacting around us, it's hard to grasp. But this is the reality of who God is, and it is the reality of how he loves us. You know, just like the Israelites, God is using all of these things that are swirling around us, all of these things that put us off kilter, they're all being used to turn our eyes back to him and, and in reality, all of these things happening in our culture, I firmly believe, are also being used by God to turn our eyes back to him. It's on a significantly larger level. While it's hard to be on this side and see it raging out there, God, I'm glad I'm on this side. God, I'm glad I had that hope because apart from it, I, it would be completely hopeless. But we put our faith in God. We put our hope in God. He has called us by name, and today, this morning, he desires that we would cry out to him because he stands ready to listen. He sees you and he knows. He sees you and he knows. And if you're a non-believer this morning, what I'm hoping for you as we close, my prayer for you is that you would be captured by the God who knows you. You'd be captured this morning by the God that has known you since before you were born and the God that, that even now, even now is implanting in your heart and giving you the desire to know him. Don't deny that desire. It's not yours, it's his, and he's given it to you. If that's you this morning, I pray that you would not delay, that today would be the morning that you would give yourself over to the Lord. And if you are a believer and you're struggling this morning, let me encourage you, cry out to God because he knows and he hears. Lay your burdens at the foot of the cross and, and let let the Lord be the one that, that binds up your wounds. Let me pray for us this morning, and Brendan will come back out. Lord, we are so incredibly thankful that those truths about you are true, that they're true for us, God, that they're true for anyone, anyone who would call upon your name. Lord, we are, we are so thankful that... Our hope is in you. Our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is not in our bank accounts. Our hope is not in the comforts of life that we have 
grown so accustomed to, my God, but our hope, our hope is in you. Should all comfort fade, should all comfort cease to exist, my God, we know and we trust that you will not, that you will always be there, God. You will always be there comforting and loving and guiding us, my God. Lord, I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit would would just be active in the room, Lord. I pray that that those this morning that you may be calling to yourself, Father, would you, would you lead them to take those first steps this morning? Would you lead them to cry out to you, God, for comfort, for hope, for salvation? Lord, those of us who, who know you and, and may be stagnant, those of us who, who know you and may be, may be embroiled in whatever personal oppression we may have going on in our lives, God, may you bring to our remembrance that you are not idle, but you're working. You're working now. You're working in the midst of the sorrow. You're working in the midst of the shame. You're working in the midst of all of the things that we believe make us unworthy to call out, cry out your name, God. But, but you're working and you're there. And you, and you, in your timing, Father, you will bring those things to an end, whether it be here on earth where we see it or whether it be by the release that comes for the believer at death. One way or another, God, the circumstances will come to an end and you'll get the glory for it either way. God, we love you. Be with us the rest of this time. Continue to, continue to work in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.